This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Please open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Greetings to all of you and those of you <coughs> away perhaps on this Labor Day weekend. Lord bless you as well. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. I mentioned in the pastor cast this week, if you all were able to have some time to, to, to listen to that, that I've been asked to preach a sermon this coming week at, uh, at a pastor's conference, and the, the thing that was given to me was pressing on through times of adversity or difficulty. And of course, that's a pressing on in the ministry, but I thought that the central core of that message would be very applicable to us, to us all from the book of Hebrews. Taking all of chapter 11 and into the first three, uh, three verses of chapter 12, I'm not going to read it all, but I just want to draw your attention here this morning to some of the main themes. So let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Scripture says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Look at verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God the Father, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then most of you know that he goes through this long list of, of believers who by faith persevered and endured many things. Right? By faith Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Sarah received power to conceive and so forth. And I want to draw attention now to Moses in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and and in dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is God's word. May his spirit bless it to your conscience and to your heart. Lord, we do look to you today. We look to you as we think it's been prayed for those whose lives are on the line right now. And they are suffering these very things. They're being tortured. That they might rise to a better life. They're being mocked and flogged. Lord, it's, it's up to you, God, to minister to our hearts. Hearing such things knowing such things are happening and sitting in this air-conditioned room. But it's essential, Father, that we, that we face our own trials. For whatever we face is what you've assigned. So, Lord, remember us and minister to us now. Loosen my tongue and come near to us by your Spirit and help us all, God, to hear your word and to be moved in our hearts by your grace, to cling to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, it is, it is almost surreal to read those verses and think about, there's Christians really going through this right now. And I know it's all a matter of context, you know, what, what God has done in their lives that he put them there. And he's put you and me here. He's brought us you, you here today to, to be here. And you're, you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And I know in some ways it's getting more difficult for some of you here in, in where we live. Not on the, not on the level of, what, of our, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. But we live, live in increasingly uh, more confusing times. And I know that people are becoming weary and faint-hearted. I mean, I've talked to you. Weary of the cultural upheaval, you know, weary of the societal upheaval, weary, weary of all the bantering, weary of all the political uh, argumentation, weary of getting beat up on social networks because you said one thing, you know. Weariness and discouragement. I meet, I meet more, more Christians today who at least feel like that, whether or not they'll say it. Some will, you know. I came here today because the book of Hebrews was written for weary people. Uh, for people who are feeling that weight of discouragement and are feeling the cost of following Christ in some way, in some capacity. Let me remind you of something about this book. The, the Hebrews is one long sermonic exhortation in the form of an epistle written and sent to a, a mixed group of Jewish Christians Primarily, when I say mixed, what I mean is they were, they were all in kind of some different places. Some were committed to Christ, no doubt, but a great number were weary. They were weary and disheartened. Some of them were sitting on the fence. The cost of Jesus was becoming too much for some of them. Others were just beginning to coast along, and some were actually considering, from what we understand, a return to Judaism, you know, take a step backwards, and why would they do that? Well, on one level, I mean, at least, at least Judaism's visible, tangible. You could smell the sacrifices, you know, you could hear the, the singing and see the priests. And on another level, Judaism was a legal religion. It's easier to fit in the empire, easier with family. Christianity was not. And so identification with Jesus was becoming for them what is becoming for some of us, and that is a source of distress. A source 
of difficulty. And if I were to sum up the main message of this whole letter in the most simplistic terms, it would simply be this, don't fall away from Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus. Cling to him. Hold fast to him. And in their context, to those Jewish Christians, those, those who were thinking about going backwards, uh, the message was, listen, if you're thinking about going back to the priests and the sacrifices and, and the ministries and the temple and so forth, you've got to understand that those were temporary, preparatory shadows of the real thing. And the real thing has come. It's the Lord Jesus. He is the final perfect sacrifice. He is the final great high priest in heaven on our behalf. He's greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. There is no going back. Christ has come. Messiah is here. And to turn away from him is to turn away from the only salvation that God has provided. And he uses that metaphor that that depicts our faith not as a momentary decision whereby you get a stamp, but genuine Christian faith is something that, that is durative. He says the Christian life is like a race, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so he says, let us run this race. It's a race that's not a competition against other, other believers. It's a race to endure in faith, to remain loyal to Jesus in the life of pressure. You know, the apostle Paul saw his, his walk with Christ in the same light as he came to the end of his life. He knew was, his life was about to end. And what did he say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7? He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished, what? The race. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, I have kept the faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews is exhorting them to do. To keep clinging to Jesus. Chapter 10, 36, you have need of endurance. Every Christian does, beloved. We have need of endurance. He says, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive at the end what is promised. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, verse 39, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, he was confident that the majority of them were genuine Christians and they needed to persevere. They needed this exhortation, as some of us need. In chapter 12, verse 12, he says, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. You feel like that? <laughs> you ever feel like that? Drooping hands, weak knees, remaining loyal to Jesus. He says, make straight paths for your feet. You're on a, you're, you're on a marathon. Stay on course so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, again, remain committed to Jesus. Now, he is exhorting them, therefore, to finish the race. Understand, it is a marathon. It's a journey. It's tiring, as Paul says as well. Now, we believe, and we teach, beloved, and those of you who have been a part of the church for some years, you know that we believe in what is called the perseverance of the saints, right? The genuine believers will remain true. They will persevere through this up and down, through the highs and the lows, but perseverance of the saints is only one side of a two-sided coin. We also believe in the preservation of God. That is to say, Christians, genuine Christians, will persevere in the faith because God preserves them in the faith. In other words, the ultimate ground for our perseverance is not our efforts, it's not our strength. It's not your capacities. It is the preservation of God through His grace. Nevertheless, it's our faith, our faith that must persevere. Right? And it's, again, that mystery of that union between God's sovereignty and human responsibility that comes to play here in the Christian life when you think about this. Sometimes God 
preserves our faith through exhortations like the book of Hebrews. Through warnings like a parent who says you're gonna, it's going to hurt if you go that way. Our faith is a gift. It's a gift of God and He sustains it. We express it. That is, we live by this faith. And so it's He holds us fast that we might hold fast to Him. You have to believe both sides of the coin here and understand this is what Scripture says. Be utterly assured of your faith being sustained to the end. You leave here today, I want you understanding that, remembering that. The Lord Jesus said in, in, in the Gospel of John 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. How long do we follow them? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But not only is the Son securing us, He says, My Father, God the Creator, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We believe in the perseverance of the saints because we believe in the preservation of God. Now you say, well, that's, that's the Gospel of John. That's, that's Paul elsewhere. Did the author of Hebrews... Leave them on a good note like that, too? I mean, I read Hebrews, I think it's all warning. <laughs> no, 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 beloved. Listen to how he, he ended this long exhortation, chapter 13. Consider how he ends in verse 20. He says, now, after all the exhortation to remain true, he says, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, he's speaking of the Father, who, who is the omnipotent God who is able to raise his Son from the grave. May he, the one who raised Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may God the Father equip you with every good that you may be able to do his will. Is remaining in faith doing his will? Absolutely. How does he do it? Working in us. Do you believe that? He's working in you today. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, the one whom we, we are united to, you see. Yes, the author leaves them on that good note, understanding that you will be preserved, but you must persevere by faith. It's almost like what Paul says in the letter to the Philippians where he says in chapter 2, verse 12, to them, you work out your salvation, not work towards it, but work it out practically in your life with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, you see, both to will and to do, to have the desire and to fulfill it, right? According to his power, he's at work in every genuine Christian. So I want you to, 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 to leave here today hearing that the bottom line is what? It's not just cling to Jesus, but he's clinging to you. But you must persevere in faith. You're facing stress. You're facing challenge. You're facing change. A plan that got ruined. Don't walk away from him. Remain true to him. Faith, then, is that gift of God, sustained by God. And this faith resides in us because God has placed it in us. And at times, He strengthens it. He tests it like a mother bird he, with reminders, with exhortations, with prodding. And faith functions in us in certain ways. Look at verse 1. This is not a complete definition of faith, but this is a, a look, a look into the nature of faith. He says, faith is, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith, faith believes that the unseen God is, is true. Genuine. Faith believes that the unseen Christ is real. Faith has a conviction that what God has promised, though we don't see it now with our eyes, is real that there will be a resurrection, and so forth. That's the nature of faith. How essential is faith? 
Verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. That is the God the Father. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's how essential it is. It's absolutely fundamental to the Christian life. To be a Christian is to believe that the invisible God exists. To believe that what he says is true. No matter where it leads us, where it takes us. That's the nature of faith. And then he, he provides all the examples. Why? Because he knows this will encourage them and encourage you and me. This whole list of people, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and so forth. People like David. He said all of them persevered, endured tremendous things. How did they do it? Through their superhuman intelligence. Through their natural capacities. No, he says, by faith. Because faith unites us with Him. By faith. And after all these examples, He comes to rest on the supreme example. He says, when you run this race, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, you may look back to David, and you may look back to them. I want you to look back there. They're part of those witnesses. And it'll encourage you to remember that David committed adultery. That David plotted a murder. And he finished why? Because by faith you will be saved. By faith he received the righteousness of God. By faith he endured to the end, you see. But when you want to endure, when you want to hold up, when people pressure you today, he says you just keep looking to Jesus. The author of your faith, the perfecter of your faith. And when you are considering what, where, how, how hard it's getting, look to him because he endured the cross. That's what he tells us. Now, I'm not going to expound all these details, obviously. It's a lot there. I just want to focus on two key ideas from this whole section which I've just introduced. I want to help you understand how faith perseveres in adversity, in times of adversity. And if I were to boil it down to simply this, how does faith persevere in times of adversity? It perseveres because faith sees. Faith perceives the invisible. Faith sees the invisible. And in particular, two things. Two things I wanted to leave you with today. Our faith perseveres in times of adversity because faith is looking to the reward. Faith looks to the ultimate reward. Look down at verse 24. We'll take that from the story of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, uh, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Two things here. I want you to notice the action. Two actions here. Two things he did and how the action sprung from faith. What were the two things he did? First of all, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And secondly, he said no to the fleeting pleasures of sin. So that's what he was facing. And first of all, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What's that mean? He refused to be treated like a prince. He, he refused to, 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 to live in the advantages that he had. Think about what this involved. He had been given tremendous privileges. He had been given the best education. He could enjoy the best of everything. He had access to power. Could you walk away from all that? <laughs> he made that choice. That was the action. He refused that. And he chose, rather, to be associated with the people of God, who were Israelites. He chose, rather, to be mistreated, to be mocked, and to live all those princely opportunities and, and, and options that he had and comforts behind. Secondly, he said no to fleeting pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible is always brutally honest. Can sin be pleasurable? Absolutely. That's the attraction. But he describes it as fleeting pleasures. It's only momentary. 
Sin is destructive because it's contrary to how God has made the universe, made you. It will bring destruction and, and distortion. It will bring the breaking up of, of relationships, and it's ultimately destructive. The wages of sin is death. And so, yes, there's pleasure there, but it's fleeting pleasure. And so he said no to that. The term pleasure, however, can also mean advantages. Perhaps it's meant in that way. Well, they both were true. You know, compromise can result in some advantages. Huh? Compromise can open doors. Compromise can get you a higher pay raise. Compromise can get you a better career. Compromise can get you comfort. Compromise can bring you stability. Compromise can make life easier and so forth. Well, he said no to that, you see. He walked away from both of these. That's the action, okay? And where did it spring? It sprung from faith. He made this choice because, verse 26, how did he make this choice? He considered, he considered the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's take that apart. Uh, this word considered is an evaluation word. It means to assess the value of something, you know, to appraise the value of something. Like when you sell a home or you buy a home, what happens? An appraiser comes in. This appraiser evaluates us. He assesses the value of the home. Well, that's what he was doing. He was assessing. He was appraising the value of, of these two things. He was weighing these two things against each other. Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 3 when he looks back on his life and what it meant to follow Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's the same word there. I appraised it. I assessed it. I assessed everything I lost to follow Jesus. And when I assessed it, I said, it, it, it's, it, it's nothing. Later he says, I counted it all rubbish compared to what? Compared to the exceeding value of knowing Christ. You see, he made this comparison. The interesting thing about Moses is we're told here that he compared, what did he compare? Look down. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Interesting. It doesn't say he considered the blessings of Christ. Wow. He said he considered all the hard stuff that comes of, of being a disciple of Jesus. All the difficulty it brings into my life. Of course, he was looking through at Messiah. And when he compared what it would be, what it would be like to leave Egypt and enter into a life wandering in the desert and give up all that he had, he compared the reproach, the insults that would come because he would associate with the Messiah people. He said he considered that greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Boy, you know, he said, how did he reach that assessment <laughs> if he was only looking at the reproaches of Christ? You know, I mean, uh, there's some things that I can assess the value of. You know, I'm, I'm old enough now to assess the value of certain things. Uh, and, and, but there's certain things I, I won't be able to assess the value. You know, I'll, I'll make a guess. It's like those, uh, those shows that where they bring these, uh, you know, junk to the guy or a pawn shop and they hold it up and say, what's this? And the poor guy comes thinking it's worth 10000 and the guy looks at it and goes, I wouldn't give you 50 cents for that, you know. And the guy goes, oh, man, <laughs> he's deflated. Well, if you set some shiny gem in front of me, I mean, I might look down and you put the, the light right, I might go, wow, that's... I don't know, that's worth a, bu a bunch of money. That's worth about $10,000. But an expert, a, an expert assessing it is going to go, that's just fake. That's nothing, you see. You can't assess the real value. You don't know it. Or the other way around. I can look at it and say, it's a small little thing. It's a thousand bucks. And somebody will say, that's, that's about $100,000. Moses assessed the value. He compared the value of Walking away from Egypt, huh? walking away from the dream job with that built-in lifelong pension, all the socialite parties he could have been a part of, and he looked at all that good stuff, and he assessed it. He laid it next to this, what can look like a worthless diamond, the reproaches of Christ, but he saw something 
of great value there. Why did he see that value? Well, there you are. For he was looking to the reward. He looked in the distance. He looked beyond the cost of the cross, as we would put it, take up your cross and follow me. He looked to the end. He was looking ever so dimly compared to you and me. He wasn't given as much knowledge, but ever so dimly he could still see the reward of being with Messiah and Messiah's people. And that's how he made that decision. That's how he said no. At the right time, he was looking at the reward. And what is the reward? Boy, look up chapter 10. He says, again, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, that is, you've remained true to Christ to the end, you may receive what is promised. It's at the end. There is a great reward coming. Chapter 10, verse 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. What is this great reward? He tells them in there, we're, we're looking to a city without end, a glorious city in which God dwells. The, the designer and builder is God, an everlasting fellowship, communion with God, life with God forever, unending. And then he gives us a, a further hint at the end of 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 40. He says that they didn't receive it. All those, David, look back at all of them. They didn't come to its complete fruition. Why? Verse 40, since God, God the Father, had provided something better for us, beginning with them and you and me, look at the verse, that apart from us they should not be made, what? Perfect. That they would not share in the glories of of Christ in perfection. I think that was getting to, you see. The great reward that lies ahead is beyond this grave. The great reward that lies ahead through our union with Christ is to share in the glories of Christ himself, to be made like him, he who is at the right hand of the God the Father. Moses didn't have as much as you and I have. We have a lot more pages in here especially at the time I think that this happened to him. Dim as it was, it was good enough for him. How about you? You have a lot more in here to describe from God's very heart, his word, he tells you, do you believe him that there's a new heavens and a new earth to come? That there's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death? There is a recompense is what the word means. He was looking to the recompense, some good, some bad. That's how he was able to say no and walk away from the dream job. Beloved, what you're looking at by faith is what's going to make all the difference in the world. And there's a whole lot of competing values, competing treasures, if you would, that are setting themselves before you daily. And if what you see is that, then it's going to lead to weariness. Because you set your hopes on something that's finite, and therefore your hope is finite. You set your hope on something that won't endure and therefore your hope won't endure. The Lord Jesus taught us this, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he associated our treasure with sight, spiritual sight. He makes that connection in there. And what he's saying is that what you treasure, either on earth or in heaven, what, you're, what you treasure controls your vision, controls your sight, and that controls your decisions, you see. You will move towards what you treasure. You'll make decisions based upon what you treasure. And if what you treasure is finite, then when it's, when it's threatened, your hope is threatened. So how does our faith persevere in adversity? It does, first of all, it perseveres by looking with spiritual perception, being able to see through the times to the great reward. Of what? Of sharing in the glories of Christ, being made like Him. Now, secondly, and this is really, they coalesce to be this, to really become one thing. We sang about it, and that is this our faith perseveres in adversity by looking 
to Christ because he himself is our reward. These aren't two different things. We sang that. Our great reward is Christ himself. Now let's look down how this takes shape, verse 27. We're looking again at the action and how it sprung from faith. Verse 27, by faith he, that's Moses again, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What's the action again? The action is he fled. He fled Egypt. Now I understand that it's not easy to see how running away from Egypt is not fearing. <laughs> says it sounds like he was afraid because he ran away. <laughs> he left Egypt. I think the reference here to the first time he left Egypt. I won't go into all that. But I think that's what it's talking about. I think the solution, you can see it this way. When you think about the action of his parents, remember I read it up in verse 23. Verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden. This is what his parents did. They hid him for three months. Most of you know this account. By his, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They had to be afraid of something because they hid the child. <laughs> They put him out there, but, but they weren't afraid of the king's edict and its implications upon them. I think they were afraid of seeing the child die, but not afraid of the implications of going against the king. And I think Moses, his action is one of faith. He may be afraid of death at that moment, but he wasn't afraid of leaving Egypt going into the unknown. He wasn't afraid of making the choice to walk away from what he could have had in Egypt for the sake of being associated with Messiah's people and go out there without a plan, leaving his family, leaving what he knew for the unknown and going into Midian, just like Abraham who left where he was to a place he did not know by faith. I think that's what it's getting at, you see. So his action was his willingness to go and leave Egypt and endure what that would bring into his life. Wait upon God's timing for him. And doubtless, you know, I mean, this was a choice that affected him for 40 years. It had tremendous ramifications on his life for 40 years, from prince to pauper. And I'm sure there were days when he was out there in the desert. Remember, this is before the Exodus. When he was out there, when he was smelling these stinky sheep and goats and sitting out there by himself under the hot sun of Midian, and he asked himself, did I make the right choice? I feel like my life's in a cul-de-sac. I'm on my third decade out here. You feel like that? You've made decisions because you want to stay loyal to Christ. And it's, 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 it's brought you to a dead end, so to speak. It's brought you to a financial dead end. It's brought you to a, a relational dead end. It's brought you to a cul-de-sac. You're, you're kind of spinning and wondering like Moses did, but how did he endure through all this? He endured that for four decades. You know, some of you, you make a decision, or you're thinking about making a decision that would be about your faith in Christ to remain loyal to him, and you're scared because you're thinking, if I do this, if I say this, if I do this, I fear it will bring disaster into my life. Beloved, I tell you that if by faith you make a decision to follow Christ and it brings you to disaster, it's to avoid the greater disaster that will come from not following Christ. And the ultimate disaster is damnation. There's a way that seemed right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And there's people contemplating this right now in Afghanistan on a degree that you and I could barely understand. It's disaster for them now. But the greater disaster would be to negate their faith, to deny Christ. Where are you and I today? Well, how did he endure? Because that's how we endure. How did he do it? It says there, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I love that. As seeing him who is invisible. Now, please don't think that this is speaking of a supernatural experience. It's not talking about the burning bush or anything. Remember, this is a, a chapter of an example for any Christian, you see. 
He and it's not talking about a miraculous event. There's a, there's a little particle there uh, that's connected to there, a conjunction really actually, that has a qualitative sense. That's why here in the ESV it says as seeing him. Or it could be like, or we might render it this way. We might render the phrase this way. Uh, as if he saw him who was invisible. So it's not that he was actually having these visions. It's what? It's that somehow Moses by faith could spiritually perceive the value of God and being loyal to God and Messiah, you see. That sustained him. That sustained him. That's how he endured all of this, beloved. There's a... The verb itself speaks of keeping one's attention fixed on something like an artist, you know, who's painting something or an artist who's sculpting something and they're, they're fixed on it over and over. It's a continuous action here. In other words, put it this way, he chose to pay more attention to the invisible God than the visible troubles. Right there, that's it, beloved. How did he endure? He chose to pay more attention by faith up on the invisible God, his nature, his promises, than on the visible problems. And this sustained them, you know. It lifts you up, it buoys you. It helps you get through the present time. I just press it on you, just beloved, think about it. The psalmist in Psalm 16 puts it this way, in Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. That's what Moses did. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. True ultimately of Christ the Son, Jesus the Son, but true also of you and me. How is it that this psalmist knew that he was at his right hand? Well, because he was always set him before him, you see. And so these are choices we make to focus our attention on the invisible truths of God. Colossians 3.1, since then you've been raised up with, with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, you see. And so Mo Moses saw by faith what he could see through what God had revealed to him to that point. Beloved, you and I have so much more than that. We have the writings of the prophets who spoke of Messiah, who spoke of this one to come. We have the gospels who record the incarnation of the Son of God and his life, his death, sufferings, and resurrection. And then we have the epistles that explain the significance of all these events and you and I if you're a Christian you have the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth and enables you to confess with all the Christians Jesus Christ is Lord you see that's much more than Moses had and somehow he was able to fix more of his attention on the invisible than the visible sufferings and so it ought to be with you and me to be able to see him for who he is to go deeper into a Christology that, is, that will sustain you and me, to see Christ, first of all, as our suffering Savior, but not only our suffering crucified Savior, to see Christ as risen three days later, Christ as ascended, Christ as coronated, Allah Psalm 2, Christ at the right hand of the Father, Christ as the one to whom all authority on earth has been given, Christ the firstborn of the new creation, Christ the empathetic high priest, Christ the head of creation, Christ the head of the new creation, Christ the preeminent one in all things, Christ the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. You see, if you see him like that, you pay more attention to that than you do to what's coming up on the election in September here or whatever else is troubling you. And I know it's troubling you, but if you look more to that, to him, you see him who is invisible, then he will sustain you. And that's why he... He comes to that pinnacle in chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, oh, there's things you can do to run the race, you know. First of all, we're surrounded by those great witnesses who, with all their failures, and yet they finished. And so what, 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 let's also run. This is not a race to be loved. This is not a race to, to merit salvation. This is not a race to be forgiven. This is simply the journey of this life. Faith is not momentary. It perseveres. First of all, look back at those witnesses and say, if God sustained David through after what he did and his failures, he can sustain me through my failures. And then look at the things that hinder your run. 
What keeps you from seeing Christ, in other words? Remove these obstacles. Don't run with ice hockey skates on. Who would do that? (laughs) Take them off. You know, take off the things that hinder your running. But more than anything, he says, here's what I want you to do. Be looking, present tense. Be fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because he is the author, the generator, the, the designer of your faith, the one you have in you. And he's the perfecter of it, bringing it to its perfection. And look to him also as the supreme example. Why? Because whatever you and I go through, beloved, he endured the cross. And how did he do it? By faith. He trusted the Father's plan for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. The Father told him then he would have many children, many brothers and sisters. And for that joy, Jesus of Nazareth, don't, don't forget he was a human being. For that joy that laid ahead of him by faith, he could, he could go through Gethsemane knowing what was coming on some dimension and then he could go to the cross. He could watch his friends abandon him and he could enter into the darkness of death and the grave. And then for that joy set before him, he was raised from the dead. So look to him. He says, verse 3, this is the pinnacle. Why? Consider him. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There it is, beloved. There it is. That's the totality of all this, right? How does our faith persevere? By seeing the reward that is Christ. Let me put it this way. Our ability to persevere in faith is directly correlated to our capacity to see Christ by faith. Right now. Let me say it again. Your ability to persevere in faith is directly correlated to your capacity to see Him by faith for who He is right now. That's that's where that strength comes from. That's where out of weakness comes strength. Be being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, says Paul to Timothy. And so it is to you and me. The struggle some of these original readers had, I think, is is that they were sitting on the fence and they were struggling, they were comparing, they were assessing, right? Like Moses, they were comparing on the one side the approval of man, fitting in with family, fitting in with culture, on the other side with the reproach of Christ, but they were having problems with what? Seeing through the reproaches of Christ to what? To the reward at the end. They were, it was getting dim. They were forgetting, and they weren't seeing the ultimate reward. They, the, the diamond wasn't brilliant to them. They were losing their perspective. They couldn't assess the real value, what it means to be associated with the Son of God in His sufferings that we may be associated with Him in His glories. They couldn't see that at the time. And their, wake was, their faith was becoming weak. This is exactly what Paul says, doesn't he? In Romans 8, that glorious chapter in verse 17. This is what Paul says. He says that we as Christians, we are heirs. Listen to this. Heirs. Heirs of God. That's unbelievable already, but he goes beyond that. Joint heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. <laughs> awesome. All that belongs to Christ as the Son of God who came and victoriously overcame death and, and, and sin. All that is His is yours and mine through our union with Him. We are joint heirs with Christ, provided. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But you've got to see the glories of being an heir with Christ to endure the sufferings and the difficulties in this present life. And there's people for whom this is a daily thing as common as breathing in and out. And there's some of you for whom it's that same thing. You're sick, you have family members who are ill perpetually, and it's like breathing in and out is the need to keep seeing him. that I might make the right choices and not become weary and faint-hearted, strengthen these hands and, and weak knees. And that's the task of the church when we come together. Why do we gather? Uh, we gather together that together we may see Him. 
But that brother or sister who comes in the door, worn out by the week, doesn't come in here to be analyzed, scrutinized, but to come here and be given perspective, this kind of vision of the glories and sufficiency of our salvation in Christ Jesus. That's our task. That's our blessing, actually, to be able to do that, you know. That's why we need to come together. Some years back ago, when I was in, the, in my early 20s, one of, the th- uh, one of the things I'd do, I'd go fishing, you all know that. I'd also go do some shooting, do some hunting. I was hunting for some quail up in Northern California. Like I said, the first hour, yes, I kill small animals and eat them. Get over that, okay? We're, we're past that, now let me go on, okay? Yeah. So I was doing some quail hunting, which is something I do periodically, and I was shooting for some quail. But I went out early in the morning, and it was dark when I went out, you know, so I got out there, and then I was going up and down. There's all these gorges and hills and, and, and shrubs and manzanita and then trees and fallen this and that. And after doing this all day, I had become disoriented. You know, it's like you get fixated when you get that, you know, bloodlust, you know. <laughs> and somehow, somewhere out there in the middle of these shrubs, I realized, I don't know where I'm at, <laughs> And I got to go. The sun's starting to set. And I remembered. You know what I remembered? I remembered there's a water tower sitting on the hill right next to the cabins where I'm staying. So what did I do? I, I got to make it to high ground. I don't, just, I don't care what direction. I got to make it to high ground. I got get to my, get my sense of direction. I made it to the first hill. You see, ah, there it is. Man, I was heading the wrong way. When we come here together, we're trying to bring each other to high ground. We want to come to, come to the highest ground. I want you to tell me, Tony, don't get discouraged. Let's take you to high ground. And I want you to say to each other, when we sing, what are we singing these songs for? We want to bring you to high ground so that you can see what? So you can see, as it were, him who is invisible. Now, some of you need to see him for the very first time as the one upon whom God placed your sin and guilt. You need to see him there first. You need to see Jesus as the one upon whom God set all his wrath. You need to see him as the one who suffered what you deserve. He was crucified, beaten, whipped. He suffered the wrath of God the Father. You need to see him like that first. Be convinced of that which means seeing yourself as a sinner. See him as that Savior who took what you deserve and then see him risen from the dead. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Start there. Start there, some of you. And then you can, you can make it to high ground from the rest of your life. And we're here to help you. Let's pray.